Sean <clears throat> forwarded me a message or an article from the Wall Street Journal about a month ago, part of which I'm going to share with you this morning. He forwarded it, so I figured it was a good message. I printed it out, and I left it on my desk unread. And then I read another article in World Magazine about the same individual, and so I thought I'd better go back and read the article Sean had sent. This is uh, from Greg Easterbrook, Wall Street Journal, September 16th. He writes about a man he says is arguably the greatest American of the 20th century. And by the way, this is on the, this individual's death. He just died. Easterbrook calls him the very personification of human goodness. He saved more lives than anyone who has ever lived. In fact, later... Statisticians said this man probably is responsible for saving a billion human beings. That got my attention. I'll bet it's got yours too. And I'm thinking, who in the world are they talking about? A brilliant man who forsook privilege and riches in order to help the dispossessed of distant lands. That this great man and benefactor to humanity died little known in his own country. He was an American speaks volumes about the superficiality of modern American culture. Now also, he doesn't mention it here. If you check online, you'll see, or to his website, he's one of only six people to have won the Nobel Peace Prize, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the Congressional Gold Medal. Now this is a guy I'd never heard of, and I'll bet you haven't either. And his name is Norman Borlaug, and he was an Iowa farm boy who lived to be about 95 years old, and all he did was teach the world how to feed itself. Yeah, this was the first time I'd ever heard of him as well. Let me just share a little bit of what Easterbrook shares about his life. He spent most of his life in impoverished nations, patiently teaching poor farmers in India, Mexico, South America, Africa, and elsewhere the Green Revolution, agricultural techniques that have prevented the global famines widely predicted when the world population began to skyrocket following World War II. And by the way, many of you in here are old enough to remember when we were kids, The Population Bomb was a book that came out and said that the world's going to starve. There's not enough food to feed this burgeoning population. Well, because of Borlaug, in large part, that never occurred. <clears throat> Just a little agricultural background here. From the Civil War through the Dust Bowl, the typical American farm produced about 24 bushels of corn per acre, stand. 24 bushels of corn. Sort of through the history of the Industrial Revolution period anyway. By 2006, the figure was about 155 bushels per acre. This was in large part because of Borlaug and his development of grains and cereals. This says between 1950 and 1992, global grain yields more than doubled from half a ton per acre to 1.1 tons per acre. <clears throat> this guy was so committed to his work, uh, he worked out of Mexico. This is where his, his uh, labs were and where his test fields were. But they were then exporting these new strains of wheat and rice and all the cereal grains they were developing in Mexico. They would then export around the world to places that needed food. So in the mid-60s, he was taking seed to India and Pakistan. And war broke out before they got there. And this says literally, he and a coterie of Mexican assistants accompanied the seeds. They arrived to discover that war had broken out between the two nations. 
Sometimes working within sight of artillery flashes, Borlaug and his assistants sowed the subcontinent's first crop of high-yield grain. Within three years, Pakistan was self-sufficient in wheat, and within six years, India was self-sufficient in the production of all cereals. This says the 1950 global grain output of 692 million tons compares with the 2006 output of 2.3 billion tons came from about the same number of acres used in farming. And what Borlaug and his, his group did was they figured out not only to get plants to produce more abundantly, but how to grow shorter so that the, they wouldn't fall down. And then also that these plants they developed, they can grow in any latitude, that the sunlight didn't matter. <clears throat> Easterbrook closes his article saying this, It is often said that America lacks heroes who can provide constructive examples to the young. Here was such a hero. Yet those streets and buildings are named for Norman Borlaug throughout the developing world. Most Americans don't even know his name. That was certainly true for me. So just in context... This is an Iowa farm boy who grew up and he poured himself into his vocation. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't involved in what we would typically consider spiritual work. But he poured himself into the area of life God had fit him for. His vocation was as a farmer and an agronomist. And all he did was change the world. And all he did was save about a billion lives. And when you and I sit down and eat our cereal every day... You're eating some of the fruit of his labors. It's amazing. We're returning to the series Strengthen What Remains this morning. We've been out of this series for a while because of vacations and other series as well. So let me refresh your memory briefly. Uh, Revelation 3, when Jesus writes to the church at Sardis, he writes to a church that has a reputation for being alive and vital. But he says your reputation is not deserved. You're really dead. And you've got to wake up and strengthen the things that remain and are about to die. And what I'd like to wake up to this morning, wake up and smell the coffee this morning, is to the fact that in God's economy, all of life is sacred and all of life is important. And that whatever God has called us to, wherever he's called us to, it's important. You know, last month in September, we had four messages that talked about finding your niche in the church, in Lion and Lamb or in the body of Christ at large. One of the things, hi Adam, we talked about in that was that God has given you, if you're a Christian, gifts and callings. He's equipped you to serve other Christians in the body, and he's called you to do that in a particular place or with different groups of people in different times. This morning we're taking that and we're sort of expanding it a bit. We're calling vocation all of your life, and maybe particularly the area of life in which you spend most of your time. So if I said careers, if you're a housewife, you might say, I don't have a career. But we're really talking about the areas of life in which you understand God's called you to spend the majority of your time. Principally, vocation. What's my vocation? Where has God called me? And my hope this morning is that we'll see that God's calling involves all of our lives, everything we do, every place we go, all the efforts we have, in God's economy for a Christian, there's no sacred versus secular. I was struck this morning, Sunday school, one of the messages, one of the verses they quoted was from Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel's day, God condemns the priesthood by saying, look, <clears throat> you guys don't distinguish between the sacred and the common. Well, the age in which we live in, we're all priests. 
and everything's sacred. In all of our lives as Christians, all of life is sacred and is to be offered up back to God as something sacred. And we pour ourselves into our vocations, whatever they look like. We offer all that back to God. It's all sacred and holy. We'll look at this through three different lenses. They're a little related this morning. The first is this, that God has a calling on all of your life, not just part or some. We tend to think God sort of owns a Sunday morning, maybe Wednesday night. We take care of the rest. No. We have a calling in our life that affects all of our life. The second thing is that we are called to glorify God in every area of endeavor. Anything we're involved in, we're commanded in the Scriptures to honor God in it. And the last is this, that we are called to see that we are priests commanded to offer to God the fruits of our labors. Just as Borlaug offered the world the fruits of his labors, we're called to offer God the fruits of of our labors. On the first one on calling, <clears throat> we'll go to John 21 here in just a second. I was reading Matthew, I think it was five this morning in my own quiet time. Um, this thought of call, calling, you know, most of the time we think of our lives as we look at life, we, we assess our options and we choose. But you know, biblically, that's sort of a false notion. Biblically, God calls and we respond. Jesus says, come follow me, and then we follow. He's the initiator, we're not. So our life is supposed to be lived as a response to God's call, and we follow Christ in the places that he's called us to. So this morning in Matthew's gospel, I was struck. Jesus goes to uh, Simon and to Andrew, and he says, hey guys, come follow me. They didn't choose to be his disciples. He chose them. And then he goes over to John and James in their dad's boat, and he says, hey boys, Come follow me. He called them. And then their life was a response to that call. And they followed him. Well, later towards the end of their life, or towards after Jesus' resurrection in John 21, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's met with them for those 40 days after the resurrection. And the boys have been back in their home court fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And they see Jesus there on the shore. And he's made them a little breakfast, grilled some fish. And they come back and they join him. And he restores Peter. Peter, who denied him three times, is restored. Three confessions of faith or love for Christ. And then Pete and Jesus are walking along the shore. And Jesus tells Peter, when you're older, folks are going to take you where you don't want to go. And it says he signified that he would be crucified. That's how he would glorify God in his life. Now, you know, you and I would be thinking like, Pete, oh gosh, thanks for telling me and what a glorious future I have to look forward to. And Peter knows that John is walking behind them. And so Pete's thinking, okay, this is my future. Thanks so much for telling me. What about him? And Jesus says, hey, you don't worry about him. You follow me. And the point is this, on the front end that I just want to make is this. When When their lives started with Christ, it was a response to his call. He said, boys, come, follow me. And that's what they did. That was those years of discipleship with Jesus on the earth before the resurrection. But then when he's getting ready to leave, he says the same thing. You follow me. So whether it was while Jesus was alive on the earth or if it was afterwards when he was gone, their life was supposed to be a response to his leadership and calling. It wasn't their option. They weren't exercising their best judgment. They were following his lead and answering his call. I would just submit that that's the model for you and I today as well. 
Oz Guinness, in one of the best books I've read in probably several years, called The Calling, says this, Calling is the truth that God calls us to Himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to His summons and His service. And he says later, The truth is not that God is finding us a place for our gifts, but that God has created us and our gifts for a place of His choosing and we will only be ourselves when we are finally there. Guinness re, uh, recounts in that same book, when he was a young guy, he'd been discipled by Francis Schaeffer, he'd become a Christian, and the people who knew him best were saying, wow, you know what, you should go into the ministry. Go to seminary, get a seminary education, you should become a pastor, a teacher, whatever, an evangelist. And he felt sort of uh, burdened by this, and he thought, is that really what God wants me to do? And he prayed about it and he searched things over and and he had a a meeting with a guy at the gas station, just one of those providential things that just tripped the thinking in his mind and he realized God has not called me to full-time evangelism or ministry. God called him into academics and into the business world and he spent the last 40 years speaking to and writing books primarily for businessmen all over the world. But he's had a huge impact on people, men primarily, all over the world. But in his own life, he was wondering, is that really my call? Is that really what God has for me? And you know how the appeal goes. If I do this, this is sacred. This is important. I'm full time. But if I do this, I'm just a businessman. Or I'm just a housewife or whatever. Well, see, the thing is, if you're following Jesus' lead, what isn't related to his ministry on the earth? If you're following His call, if you're doing the things He's leading you to do, it's all important, it's all sacred, it's all holy. In that sense, it's all the same. There's no greater or lesser. It's all important. Vocation, by the way, comes from the Latin word vocare, and it just means to call. You know when I was a little boy, Zach, uh, being raised as a Roman Catholic boy, they would tell us uh, to pray for vocations. And I confess, I had no clue whatsoever that meant. Pray for vocations. And the thought was this. Pray that little guys like me, which is hard to conceive, and little gals like my sisters would grow up to be priests and nuns. See, vocations was understood to be a calling to be a priest or a nun, to full-time religious service or missionary. The problem with that the view is just way, way, way too small. Because according to the Scriptures, God can call you to any sphere of life. And that's your calling. So He doesn't divide life between sacred and secular. We do. And for some good reason, of course, in the Old Testament period, you had a separate priesthood. and This was holy, God said. This was common. But I just think we lose the message that in the new covenant that we live in, That's all been blown away because Christ now exerts His lordship over all of creation. And we as priests under Christ, we bring that same priesthood and that same sense of holiness to everything we're called to do and all the places He calls us to go, whatever that is. So what this does is, thank you. My hope is that this allows us to see 
you can live your life radically for Christ at home changing diapers or in a classroom teaching students or as a musician or whatever you think it is or as a farmer. You know, you can change the world if you're a farmer like Borlaug did. God can use you right where you're at. So if we understand that life is meant to be a response to God's call and to Jesus leading, it's all sacred, it's all holy, it's all important. It's all us responding to His call. Calling has not only to do with people who serve God in the church, but with every Christian in every sphere of life. In God's economy, it's less important what you're doing than that you're doing it as a response to what God wants in your life and for Him. So, if you're serving Jesus as a missionary full-time in the far-flung fields of the world, that's great. But if you're serving God as a housewife on Randolph Street, that's okay. Because they're all the same. In that sense, they're all the same. Because we're all being faithful to the call we've got. And that's what's important in the end. It's not so much what we're doing, but that we're following Christ's call for each of us. And when we fulfill that call, when we follow Christ's lead, we're like Peter and John. We're like Borlaug. We're plugging in where we've been made to fit. We're not making things up as we go. We're being faithful to that call. <clears throat> we need to wake up <clears throat> excuse me, to the fact that Jesus has a call on every one of us. And he says, you come follow me. And it's going to look different. And it won't do to look behind and say, what about him? Like Peter did. All our calls are different. No reason to envy someone else. No reason to take pride in what we, what we have. We talked about that with spiritual gifts. It's the same thing in our larger vocation or the other spheres of life God's called us to. We need to wake up to the fact that all of life is meant to be a response to Christ's call. The second thing is that we're called to glorify God in every area of our life. And again, we tend to break life down, so this is important, this is unimportant. I'll just do this to get by, but I'll, this is important, so I'll work hard at this. When Paul wrote the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, he's trying to help these guys come to grips with the fact that life's changed around them, and they're trying to say, okay, what does this mean for us? So specifically, in this context, it's what can we eat and what can we not eat? So can we eat this meat, yes or no, uh, this meat that was in that temple, is that okay for us or not? And it's a practical problem, and Paul addresses it. But he concludes with this. Verse 31, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And at some level, Paul's sort of saying this, Guys, <clears throat> your aim's too, too shallow. You're looking too small and short. Raise your eyes up. Instead of just saying, what's the minimum? What can I do or not do? What must I do or what must I not do? He says, make this your aim instead. Everything you do, just make this your motive. I'm going to glorify God in what I'm doing. And you can do away with all the lesser motivations. I'm going to glorify God in this context, in what I eat and how I eat. Now, this is very practical. For some of us, if we apply this literally today, some of us would eat less, wouldn't we? Like me, I would eat less, a little less. You know the truth though, if you're a twiggy woman and you think being skinny is all, you might actually eat a little bit more or healthy. But if we said, when we sat down at the table, I'm going to glorify God in my eating, it would change the way we saw our meals and eating. But that's actually what Paul's saying. There's no detail of life that's too small to honor God in it or that our motive is 
to honor Christ. Eating, drinking, he says, whatever you do, that's all of life. Whatever, wherever, whenever, my motive is to be nothing less than to glorify God. Paul says the same thing again in Colossians 3, verse 17, and again verse 23. Whatever you do, word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Whatever you do, vocationally, wherever you're at, everything we do, our motivation is supposed to be to honor God in it. So we bring the same motivation to every sphere of life. Let me, last scripture verse in this group, let me end on a, a challenging one for me. This is out of Ephesians 6. This is addressed to slaves. You know, slavery for Americans is this nasty part of our collective cultural past, you know, but the truth is slavery has been a part of almost all the history of the world. And slavery was a common aspect of life when Paul was writing. And so he writes a letter, the Ephesians, and he includes specific directions towards slaves. He says this, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of your heart, and this is the key, as to Christ. See if this wouldn't be a challenge. Look at your master as if they are Christ. We could substitute boss, employer, relative, whatever. He says, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, not just doing your best when somebody's keeping an eye on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing this, whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Hey, if you're a slave and you can get your freedom, great, get it. But remember, you're Christ's slave, even if you're a free man in their culture. Here, to people who are slaves, he says, Hey, guys, think of your masters as though they're Christ. And then offer your service to them as if it's Jesus that you're serving. With this conclusion, you'll receive back from the Lord whether slave or free. That at the end of the day, you're supposed to see your service as a slave, not as to the man or the master, but actually as to Christ. Now, the thing this does for me is this. It challenges me that if I were a slave in Paul's day, I would be told to submit to my master and honor them for Christ's sake. And that would be a hard pill for me to swallow. But you know, for me today, maybe your thoughts can go like this too. Let's say God calls me to be a Hollywood mogul. And I've got to live in sunny California and be important and drive fast cars. And, you know, people would, I don't know, want to be at my house and things like that. And I'd say, oh gosh, Lord, for Jesus' sake, I will do this. I'll be important and wealthy, etc. Or maybe God says, I want you to be a businessman. And I want you to have a lot of money and exercise it for me and all this. And I hang my head and I say, Lord, okay, for Jesus' I'll be wealthy, and I'll spend it well. I'll be important for Jesus. But what if, what if God says, Mike, uh, I'd like you to do the dishes? I'm like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I will say, Joe can, Joe can bear me out on this. I've done my share of dishes. I was a dishwasher at the hospital when I was a teenager. Worst job I ever had. Thankful that it was short. What if, what if God says, Mike, I want you to do the dishes? 
Well, then I'm like, well, hold on. <laughs> then I'm like, Pete, I'm feeling like I get the dishes and they get what? <laughs> I get cut short in life and they get to live into their 90s, you know. I'm going to wash the dishes and they're going to be important. But sort of, this is, this is how this cuts. You imagine if you're Pete on the shore and your future has just been determined, your call is crucifixion when you don't want to go there. You're thinking, man, I don't like this. Or if I'm called to be the dishwasher, I'm thinking, oh, hold on. Lord, let's rethink this. Let's talk about this. Let's renegotiate. But if that's God's call in my life, I'm supposed to bring the same kind of thoughtfulness and motivation to that as to something that someone else finds flattering or important. But you see, the deal is this. If I'm Christ's slave, everything I do is supposed to be done for my master. It's the same motivation. Whatever the field is, whatever the endeavor is, wherever it is, the motivation is supposed to be the same on all counts. Whatever I'm doing, I'm doing for Christ. Even if that's the lowliest, menial position, or if it's the highest. Paul says, in either case, you're Christ's slave, his servant. So see the people you're employed by, your masters, whatever, see the most menial task is done for Christ. The motivation, Paul says, should be the same. There's no menial task if it's done for Christ. The third thing is this. We are supposed to live lives like priests. This is a little hard to get a hold of um, for a number of reasons. You know, uh, even being raised Roman Catholic, when you think of priesthood, it's probably not quite the same. But if you go back, you know, before, well, to the time the New Testament was written, you go back, a priesthood was normal for the ancient world in the sense that the priests were these special guys and they served a deity. So they're the deity's servant and they take these offerings and they put them on an altar and they sacrifice them to the deity. And whatever's on that altar, that belongs not to the priest and not to everybody else, that belongs to the deity. So a priest is a special person in relationship with a deity and they offer something that belongs to that deity alone. Well, we're supposed to bring that kind of mentality into our life as a Christian so that Paul writes this in Romans 12.1. He says, Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Paul's just written a bunch of theology in Romans. And he's just waxed eloquent at the end of chapter 11 about how high and deep and unfathomable is God's wisdom and His mercy and His grace and His power. And the conclusion he comes to when he's thought about all that is this. The only thing that makes any sense for me to do is to give to God everything I am and have. Based on who God is, what He's done, the only thing that makes sense for me is to throw myself at His feet like an offering. And it sort of goes like this. I'm a priest and I offer myself. I'm a priest and I climb up on the altar and I offer God myself. So that all of my life, whether I'm thinking that I'm the priest or the offering... It all goes to God. I'm God's priest and I'm His offering all at the same time. Everything I do in life is supposed to be a response to my priesthood call. 
Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 2.9. Speaking to Christians like you and I, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. <clears throat> you know, no matter what uh, career, what vocation, what time or culture you're raised in, all of us tend to break life down into these holy and unholy, important, unimportant. But the truth is, if you're a priest and you're supposed to be offering to God everything you are and have, then suddenly again, there is no secular. It's all sacred. And there is no unimportant because everything you do is an offering placed on the altar for the sole use of your deity, the Lord Jesus. And therefore, everything we do is important, and everything we do and touch is holy. In this sense, if you're doing your homework, your homework is holy. If you're literally washing the dishes, washing dishes is holy. If you're changing diapers, that's holy. If you're a farmer, farming is holy. As a Christian, everything you do are and have is supposed to be that sacrifice to God. I just think we need to wake up and realize in our life that we're throwing trinkets at God, like our giving. <clears throat> we don't give 10%. We give maybe 3 or 4 That's the average for Christians. We give 3 or 4% and call it good, Lord, and I'll take care of the rest. Or, Lord, I saw you on Sunday morning. I went with those Christians on Wednesday night, and I've got these other things to do the rest of the week. All this is false thinking. Everything we are, have, do is Christ. And everything's to be done with that in mind. If we're to follow Jesus' call in our life, if we're called to glorify God, and if we're to offer God every area of life, then I can be as spiritual and as important and valuable in the common areas of life as in the spiritual. And God's calling in my life isn't limited to the spiritual gift He's given me or where I fit in the body of Christ, important as those are, but it affects every area of our life. A month ago, uh, when we were in England, uh, we ended up in London. And, you know, there's sort of must-dos in London, and one of them was the Westminster, Westminster Cathedral. And uh, if you want to see a gorgeous cathedral to me, go to St. Paul's, because that, that is unbelievable. But Westminster, that's where all the bodies are. So if you want to see the graves, you go to Westminster. And we were in Westminster... And we're getting the little audio thing that you take through as you walk through the cathedral and there's all kinds of things to see and you don't know who or what they are and so you listen. You plug in the number and listen. Kathy and I are getting our little audio thing and we're standing on this large black piece of floor and we're looking down at our things and we're starting to read the writing on the, the tiles. It's big. It's the color of this stage and it's big. William Wilberforce. I'm like, What? We apologize to Willie. We get off his grave. We stand aside and we're like, this is William Wilberforce. His remains, anyway, beneath our feet. We're blown away. And I'm thinking of William Wilberforce. Here was a guy who was in the British Parliament and became a Christian at 25 years old. And his thinking went like many young guys would, like Guinness's had. He became a Christian. He's already in politics. And this is what he thinks. You know, uh, I should get out of politics 
dirty politics, and I should go into the ministry because that would be important and God would use me in the ministry. And so he goes to his friend John Newton, the guy who wrote the song Amazing Grace and was a slave trader, right? And was a pastor. And he tells Newton his plans and Newton says, well, slow down. Uh, It may be that God wants you to serve him not as a pastor but as a politician. And it may be that God wants to use you to help bring freedom to slaves by abolishing the slave trade in Britain. And so Wilberforce thinks about it and prays about it and he comes to the same conclusion. And he believed that Jesus had called him to a vocation as a politician. And he set about the rest of his political life over 40 years to abolishing the slave trade in the British Empire. And the magnitude of this challenge, it's hard for us. I don't think there's anything in our in the politics today that would compare to this. The Anglican church owned the biggest sugar plantation in the Caribbean. All of the royalty owned slaves. Slavery was a way of life. The British Empire was built on it. And this tiny statured little guy who'd just become a Christian said, my vocation is to be a politician for Christ and to end slavery in the British Empire. And he did. 40 years later. But see, he got it. Newton, the pastor, says, God's calling may not be for you to be a pastor. God may have called you to be a politician. God needs politicians, just like he needs farmers and housewives and whatever. There's no important versus unimportant in God's economy. In World War II, when the U.S. was fighting wars on both sides of our country, uh, one man and one company was responsible for the production of over 70% of the heavy equipment the U.S. Army and forces used in that war was made by one person and one company, and it was R.G. Letourneau. And if you read this guy's story, this is, again, this is a Midwest kid who grew up. He was a blue-collar worker. He got into some welding and some construction, some mechanics, <clears throat> never had a degree. He was conferred an honorary degree late in life, and he quips him like, well, now now I know something. But he's one of, you know, he was this incredibly wealthy, totally successful guy. But he realized he was pretty good at design on this equipment stuff and manufacturing. And so he created his own company, and he created most of the heavy equipment that was used around the world. And he got it that God had called him to be a businessman and not into the sacred ministry of the church or something. He understood that God owned all of his life, not just some of it. So, you know, we challenged each other. We did uh, the men's advance a week ago. We talked about, uh, are you happy with your giving? How much you give? Letourneau didn't give 10%. He gave away 90% of his earnings. He started a Christian university. He understood that his life was God's. And so he gave it all to God. He was a Christian businessman, an industrialist. And that's where God had called him. And that's where he honored God. And that's where he served God. So that at the end of the day, it's not so important where we're at or what we're doing, as long as we, ha- we can say this, I'm following Christ where he's led me. I'm answering his call. I'm bringing this motivation to every area of my life. I'm trying to honor Christ in whatever I'm doing. And I'm like that priest. Everything in my life is sacred. And I'm offering it to Christ like an offering as I myself climb up on that altar and say, Lord, I'm yours. Everything I have, everything I am is yours. 
We've got to get over the trinket mentality that I throw Jesus some scraps and then live the rest of my life according to my whims and my desires. No, all of life is meant to be a response to God's call. And it's holy. And I'm to honor Christ in all of it. Lord, help us to give up uh, tokenism in which we give you tokens from our life and yet reserve the rest for our own passions or thoughts. Lord, thanks that we can do no better than to hear your call to follow your lead. And that, Lord, whether we're literally washing dishes or whether we're a business magnate, help us to see all our life as a response to you. Help us to determine to glorify you wherever we're at. Lord, help us to understand that we are a holy priesthood, that we're special by your doing, and that everything we touch, Lord, is a sacrifice meant for your honor and your use. Lord, help us to live radical, transformed lives because we know you and because we are radically yours, not part, but all. Lord, consume us in your fire. Help us to have done with little things and little ways. Help us to see you above all. In Jesus' name, amen.